Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. We answer work emails on Sunday night. We read endless articles about how to hack our brains to achieve more productivity. We crop our photos and use filters before we post them on social media to earn approval. We read only the first couple paragraphs of the articles we find interesting because we don't have time to read them in their entirety. We are overworked and overstressed, constantly dissatisfied, and reaching for a bar that keeps rising higher and higher. We are members of the cult of efficiency, and we're killing ourselves with productivity. If you are like most people today, me included big time, you work feverishly to make yourself happy. Despite our constant search for new ways to hack our bodies and our minds for peak performance, human beings are working more instead of less, living harder, not smarter, and in most cases becoming lonelier and more anxious. Why are we so addicted to being busy and how much time social media and meaningless scrolling texting takes? In other words, why do we measure our time in terms of efficiency instead of meaning? Why can't we just take a break? Well, fortunately, our guest today who you just heard read a brief excerpt from the introduction of her new book out this March called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, is illuminating our path ahead so we can start living instead of doing. I'm so honored to have on the show today Celeste Headley, who I'm sure many of you know from her work on NPR and PBS as an award-winning journalist, her TED Talk on sharing 10 ways to have a better conversation has over 23 million views at last count and growing every day. I've told so many people in the last few weeks, hopefully you'll get another million. I, I promise we, we will cover that as well. Her first book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, became an instant bestseller, and she is joining us today from outside of Washington, D.C. to talk about her new book, which I absolutely devoured, and of course is available on Amazon and your favorite local bookstore, and we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So welcome, Celeste. So nice to have this time to chat, as I've kind of been a groupie from afar, so this really is exciting to have you on the podcast and help me personally and our listeners reclaim our time and redefine what is truly worthwhile. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, too. So I like to start my show hearing everybody's first story, the one you were born into. A past guest, Flip Flippin, wrote a really cool book about this, and then he wrote a book called Second Story and Third Story. And I love having the listeners get to know you a bit better. So, for example, the story of your grandfather alone to me is so wonderful and heartwarming that that could be an entire show, but maybe tie that into just your youth and, and your earlier days. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather had a massive impact on me. He was a, a giant in classical music, the dean of African-American composers. The lists of firsts, in other words, you, you know, the first black man to have a major symphony performed, the first to conduct one, is very long. And he shaped who I was. I mean, one of the stories I tell in my TED Talk is that there were always these incredible people coming over to the house, and I never knew who they were. But my mother would come over and say, hey, that's that's a, the a best-selling author of this book, or that's the mayor of whatever town. And, and it developed this, this 
default in me that I assume there's some secret about everybody that I don't know about and I just need to discover. And, and that's one of the things that has helped me out in, in conversation. Yeah, and it's so true. It's interesting. It reminds me of a story. I, I studied acting at Northwestern when I was 17 in this really cool summer program and met some amazing people. And one of the guys I met, his name was Luke Yankee, and he's gone on to become a really great director. And his mom had won an Oscar a few years earlier, Eileen Heckert, who was in uh, a movie called Butterflies Are Free. But most people knew her as Mary Tyler Moore's mom in, in the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he used to talk to me all the time about growing up and, oh, Ethel Merman stopped by and, and uh, Laurence Olivier was here for lunch. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so fascinating when you when you grow up in in, in that kind of environment and, and obviously makes you know so much of an impact. So before we take a deep dive into into the new book and all the life changing, in my opinion, advice, let's take a little step back and, and talk about conversations. So clearly, as a journalist, you've mastered that skill on NPR, PBS, and and some wonderful shows like The Takeaway. So tell us how this now legendary TED Talk came to be. I was asked to give the talk in Savannah, Georgia, and the prompt they gave me was, tell us about something that's going wrong in the world and then tell us how to fix it. And to be honest, I really, totally honestly, I did not think anyone else would find it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I It was really important to me, and I was like, well, I don't care. I, <laughs> I'm going to talk about conversation. I just feel like conversation is one of those soft skills that a lot of people groan when you bring up, but I knew how to fix it. I mean, because I had had to fix it in myself. So that prompt was, was perfect for me. I had to think of something absolutely specific and I did, and I know the solution. <laughs> so that's why I, I wrote my talk. Honestly, if I had no, I mean, I say this all the time, but if I'd known it was going to have 20 million views or something, I, I would have, you know, <laughs> done my hair, <laughs> put on makeup, but you know, there we are. That's so true. That's so true. I love how you start off asking, is there a more important 21st century skill than being able to sustain a coherent, confident conversation? There absolutely isn't. So, I mean, that, that just, that, that sucked me right in, boy, just immediately. You, you quote Buddha, I think, in the talk, if your mouth is open, you're not listening. And, and that, to me, might have been what James Taylor really meant in his song, The Secret of Life. I mean, why can't people just shut up and listen more? Just look at today's world, and we're not going to get political, but as you eloquently say, the only difference between the Civil War and the divisiveness in America today, because nobody really listens, is that we all literally actually killed each other then. Let's just talk about that a little bit, just just about the conversations and how we're just not listening to each other. You know, interestingly enough, I mean, I, the, the quote of Buddha, I was very much paraphrasing, but the thing about us, us not speaking to one another, at least during the Civil War, people were still talking. And as we start to know more about the human mind, there's some really interesting things about the, the effect that just embodied, in other words, two people in the same room, or vocal conversation has on the human brain. It is dramatic. So we know that hearing another human voice actually is what makes you feel empathy for them. It's what makes you recognize them as a human being. We know that if you read a dissenting opinion in any form of text, you're more likely to think that the person disagrees because they're stupid and they don't understand the core concepts. But if you hear them 
say that exact same thing, you're more likely to think they have different experiences and perspectives, and that's why they disagree. So, like, the source of our empathy is the sound of a human voice. And and so when I think about some of the polarization, I can't, I, I realize that correlation is not causation, but I can't help but feel that as we are refusing to speak to one another, as we stop hearing each other's voices, that is contributing to the fact that we don't see each other as living, breathing human beings with lives of our own and opinions that matter. Mm, so true. I don't want to make you go into all 10 rules because I really want everybody to watch the video and I, I already put it on LinkedIn and I'm going to link into it in the show notes, but maybe highlight one or two that for you make the biggest impact for most people. I think the one that really has to happen immediately is no multitasking. 90% of people ad- admit that they check their phones while they're talking to their friends or family. It's probably... Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. This delusion that you can actually multitask is what leads to people texting and driving. You can't. Like, your brain, the human, the homo sapiens brain cannot multitask. And there are some brains that can. A pigeon can multitask. A pigeon can do two things at once. A human being cannot. We're not built that way. And again, we have this great research that's come out showing us the effects of multitasking. Uh, For example, when you're trying to multitask, and that is especially true when it is using the same part of the brain. In other words, if you're on a conference call and you're also answering emails, the quality of both tasks goes down by at least 25%. Your IQ drops by 10 to 12 points, which puts you on a par with like an eight-year-old boy. When you are multitasking, it can over time do serious damage, cognitive damage that we're not sure is reversible at this point. So multitasking is number one. And here's the wrinkle to this. When your cell phone is visible, or if you're talking to someone in your office and and you can see your computer screen, your brain is multitasking because the the cell phone and the computer are so distracting to your brain that the, the, your brain doesn't distinguish between a notification coming in that you have an email and an actual alarm, right, or a knock on the door. It's the same to the brain. <laughs> So it sits there while the whole time your phone is visible or like your inbox is open, your brain is is trying to pay attention to that at the same time. And so you are actually multitasking. You are partially distracted. Wow. I have a whole new appreciation for pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Tim Cook might be creating an iPhone for pigeons. Apparently they they could use it well. That it's so true. And and sitting in an office all day doing what I do, where I'm got a bunch of screens going with uh, the market and talking to clients and and you know worrying about this and seeing a text come in. My mom, who's ninety two, had to, you know has an issue, and you know this is just always something happening. And you're right, it's absolutely impossible to multitask and and we try and we try but and i think the driving thing is is really the best message and that's one thing i hope people just eventually get right because that's really scary so the world obviously is listening to a lot of things you said you won the 2019 media changemaker award congratulations on that thank you tell us what was the driving force or kind of aha moment that led you to write Do Nothing. And I know we're skipping over a whole other book called We Need to Talk that people should take a look at. But for today, I really want to talk about Do Nothing. They are connected because when I finished the first book, I still, there were still some questions in my mind. 
notably, why, if conversation is so good for us, and it is, it's incredibly good for your body and your mind and your emotional health. You know, if you have a 10-minute conversation, even with a stranger, it improves your performance on a whole host of cognitive tasks. People who have better social lives are more likely to survive cancer. Their wounds heal faster. I mean, it's incredibly good for us, the, the ways that we respond to social interactions, even with strangers. So if that is true, why are we avoiding it? Right? This was my big question when I finished the first book. And I started to research it. And I realized that we have this delusion. We truly believe, most of us, that email is more efficient. It is not, by the way. (laughs) In almost every single case, human beings are so beautifully and very specifically evolved to transmit information through the sounds of our voices that email can't even come close. So we believe that texting back and forth is more efficient and saves us time. We think the same for email, and it's just not true. And I started to wonder, well, wait, are there other things that we're doing that we think are efficient, that we think are making our lives better and are not? And it turns out (laughs) a lot of them. (laughs) And if we would stop doing them, we would be happier. (laughs) Yeah. So true. I love when you talked about the dangerous implications of the time is money mentality. And trust me, that is something I've had told to me for my entire career and everything. You know, and that goes back, like you said, in time to, to in the book to the 18th century when clocks were first used to synchronize labor. And your thesis here is that we, we're working fewer hours today on average. Kind of blew me away. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's because it feels like we're working more. And we have really good time use surveys going back decades and decades and decades. That's something that we have been keeping track of for a long time. So we know that we are, in fact, less busy at work. Um, And it makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, with all of the tools that we have today, it takes a much shorter time for an accountant to get their work done than it did in 1950. We can all accept that, right? But we don't accept it in our hearts. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the other thing is, interestingly enough, one of my big sort of aha moments came when I flopped down on the couch after a really, really tough day. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't have enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. I'm exhausted. And I started, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, my dishwasher. And I remember my grandmother didn't have one. And I started thinking, wait a second. I wonder how many things I have that save me time over my grandmother. Because my grandmother had like book clubs and rotary clubs and bowling leagues and neighborhood barbecues. And she used to invite people over to look at her vacation slides, et cetera, et cetera. All those things we sort of smile about because... We don't have time for that foolishness. But I went around the house adding up the time saved by my washer and dryer and my robot vacuum and my smartphone and all those other things. And I realized that it's somewhere between 20 and 30 hours a week that I have that my grandmother didn't have. So how did she have the time to grow her own vegetables and all those other things? Mm, Wow. And yeah. So, yeah, it is surprising. I know we all feel like we're working more hours, and we're not. But when you think about it that way, as we get older and, and you know, we tell our kids things, and I think you have, you have a kid in their 20s, I believe. Yep, yeah, 21, so, yeah. yeah. I've got a 23 and a 27-year-old, both working, fortunately, doing well. But 
all of a sudden they're starting to listen a little bit to the wisdom of mom and dad, which, you know, as teenagers, we know nothing. And one of the things that I think I've really talked to my kids about a lot in the last few years is what I've learned in the last 30 years is that I can really get my work done, the important part of my day done in three or four hours. I really can. The rest is, I don't know what, <laughs> what it is, but it's, it's, it's not critical to what I need to be doing. And no matter what you're doing, whether my daughter's a journalist at People Magazine, my son is in, in the business world, is uh, in, in the sustainable investing world, and we'll get into millennials in a minute. But it's so true that you can, you know, if you just think back to what it was like in past generations, and, you know, I think back to our generation, and, and, and after school is a great example how, you know, I would just get on my bike, and I don't know where I would go, and two hours later, I'd show up for dinner, and I actually had playtime, and I actually just did versus what my kids' generation was, was, was very different. So, you know, what, one of the things that's kind of perplexed me throughout my career as a financial advisor and an educator is how low the savings rate in America is compared to the rest of the world. And it just, it just really, really frustrates me. But it's changing a little bit in the millennial generation. So what, what have you discovered about that? So let me go back first to the savings rate, which is a really fascinating the history of savings is fascinating to me because governments used to believe in encouraging people to save. That seems odd now in these times of like really, really intense consumerism, but it really has not been that long since they had savings banks in post offices and your regular things. They were very, very, pardon the pun, invested in making sure that people saved money. But something happened after World War II when the U.S. government especially realized they could move the needle on GDP by getting people to buy more. And so the emphasis went from getting people to save to getting people to spend. And that really was driven not just by corporations, not just by retailers, but by governments as well until it became synonymous buying things became synonymous with patriotism. Now, you are absolutely correct that this is turning around. The biggest generation for what I just described of was the baby boomers, not surprisingly. But with the millennials, they're kind of not buying into it. I'm just now realizing how many of these phrase cliches are <laughs> financial. <laughs> they are. They're not buying it. Nope. It, <laughs> right? it is they what are, it is. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> they are more into experiences. They have to put their money away to a certain extent because financially and economically, things are so much harder for them. Right. They're, they're growing up in a generation where they're, they're not going to be able to do what their parents were able to do. I mean, even in my little community of Westfield, New Jersey, which isn't that different than Montclair, where you spend some time, uh, just not nearly as diverse, but outside of that, you know, decent schools and, and everything and home prices through the roof and property taxes through the roof and all that other stuff. And I really, really concerned for, for my kids' generation, you know, and I, I don't know what that's going to mean. I think pricing might have to get back to reality, which is a whole other issue. <laughs> Yeah, I know. And and honestly, the the millennials, whether it's because they're forced to to put more emphasis on experiences than items, even if they're being forced to do it, it actually is better for them in the long run in terms of their well-being, their mental health. Those experiences you buy are are going to 
serve you much better if your goal is a happy life. And this is another thing that I had, I ended up having to talk about quite a bit is whether or not a higher income, a bigger house, whether those things really make you happy. Because I know it's irritating when people who are financially comfortable say, you know, money isn't everything, but it turns out it totally is true. Yeah, it is extremely true. Uh, it's, there's, <laughs> Beatles got it right, can't buy me love, but, you know, like she might have thrown in can't buy me happiness as a follow-up because it's certainly true. Or well-being. Yeah, yeah. Or, or well-being, exactly. When I was reading the book, a few weeks ago, I, I shared one of the chapters with, with my wife, who's a reporter at Time Magazine. I was telling you she's one of the last fact-checkers on Earth. She's sort of in the Jurassic period. I told her about your commentary on women versus men on multitasking as being both the administrator at work and at home. And boy, my wife pointed out to me first how right you are and, and threw about 10 examples at me and, and all guilty as charged, but would kind of love to hear you talk more about what you said, you know, lean back ladies. I love that. Yeah. This pressure for that working harder, going at it harder and longer is actually going to bring you success that you can work through it. It's just, it's not true. And this is a statistic that surprises a lot of people, people who work excessive hours, like over 50 hours a week, only see about a 6% bump in salary. It's not going to have the impact that you think it is. So I truly believe that if we're going to actually see a change in the balance of duties between the genders, it's because women are going to stop doing everything. You know, it's interesting. (laughs) My grandmother and my grandfather were married for, God, over 60 years. I remember my grandmother saying that one of the secrets to their marriage was that she would take solo vacations <laughs> <laughs> and she would be gone. And when she came home, he was so grateful, <laughs> so grateful for so her true. because, yeah, he didn't realize all the things she was doing. I listen, my wife, as I've been used to it for many years because she's been a reporter at a magazine and. And the, the nights aren't as late as they used to be in that industry, but they used to be very late. And, and it took me a while to figure out that, you know, I can actually cook. I can actually <laughs> do some of these things myself. And I, I mean, I mean, and, and part of that is I grew up in a house, the typical Donna Reed household where mom vacuum wearing pearls and dad came home at five o'clock and put on the slippers and, and was easier to talk about sex than money in that generation. So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's just so true. And, and, and yeah, lean back ladies, I think is really puts it well. We covered happiness, but I, I, I think that this also, you know, we can dig a little bit deeper and I, I kind of like to quote Mad Men at least either Mad Men or Springsteen once every show, but I'm going to quote Don Draper this week on happiness because this is one of my favorite quotes from the show when he's making one of his pitches, I think, to GM. He goes, happiness is the moment before you need more happiness, which, you know, God, did uh, Wiener just nail that with that quote. But that, it leads me to, to, you know, to you saying that humans don't need to work in order to be happy, which, you know, may be really controversial, but, you know, really hits home with the, you know, do we live to work or do we work to live conundrum? Isn't that so interesting? Like I never thought that when I started this book, I would be ending up interviewing paleontologists and evolutionary, but it became this question of, 
is work an inherent need? We live in an age now when people believe it is. And there's even scientific backup for that idea, which I go into explain in the book, I, I think is misread. But it is controversial that we don't need to work. And I, that surprises me that it is as controversial as it is. But it is absolutely correct that if you were to get a billion dollars tomorrow and never had to lift a finger again, what are your favorite hobbies? Uh, playing piano, you know, pretty much reading and, and, and cinema, just anything film and TV. I'm just, I'm just, especially stuff before 1970 and music, obviously really music is probably Bruce, the world, anything in the world of Bruce Springsteen. I've seen him 300 times. So I don't know if that's a hobby or a passion or insanity, but, or both, yeah, or a little bit of all, but for me, music is truly, I, I have a soundtrack to my life. So I would say music probably. And that's beside my kids and family and all that. Yeah, of course. You could spend the rest of your life living off your interest, going to Springsteen concerts and and all the other things that you do, and be perfectly healthy and happy. You would never feel the loss of going into the job. But we have gotten to this place where even retirees who can retire are afraid to do so because their identity is so wrapped up in their job. Uh, especially in the U.S., where one of the first questions people ask is, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, in, in your research, and I would imagine this is not the first question people ask in Finland, Norway, and some of these other countries where people seem a lot happier, even you know, other parts of Europe. It's not, what do you do? It's, you know, what, what makes you happy? Maybe it's something along those lines. So there's tech now, which comes and, you know, helps our happiness, but kind of ruins it. It does seem to be the root of all evil here. One, you know, one day another and kind of guilty as charged. Personally, I start my day scrolling, reading, spending half my time when not working or sleeping on my phone. Apple even throws it in my face weekly and tells me what my screen time is. And I feel so great. Look at me, honey. I I went from six hours a day to five hours and 20 minutes. I, I really got it. So uh, what's a poor boy to do but playing a rock and roll band, you know? Sorry, Mick, just just had to. But I, I, I know you've made some changes in, in your usage. And I had this other author I talked to who talked about a technology Shabbat. And for those not members of the tribe out there, every Saturday, many Jews around the world, I'm a Reformed Jew, I'm not necessarily one of them, but many Jews just sort of, you know, especially in Israel, you can't even take the elevator. I mean, every all electronics, everything, they just sort of talk with family. And, and it's really about the power of unplugging a day a week. And I know you get into that in the, in the book, so kind of like to hear your spin on all that. Yeah, I mean, I think that originally we thought that social media would bring us closer together. There really were high hopes about that, and it has done the opposite. Much like the open office plan was intended to make people talk more, and it's done the opposite. It makes people talk less and avoid each other more. And sort of the same thing as the the curse of the unintended consequence, that that's kind of what our phones have done. It's mostly because people aren't using it as a phone. I really do think that to a certain extent, the software designers were so successful at creating an addictive product that we treat our cell phone kind of like if you're watching a movie with a bag of popcorn, like you're just mindlessly eating. And then you get to the end of the movie and you're like, how did I eat all that popcorn? <laughs> and I don't think we're aware of how often we touch our phones. That's the point. 
like if you have ever left your house and then had a sudden grip of fear when you realized you didn't have your phone with you, you are most likely addicted to your phone. Yeah, that's why I have a watch with cellular because God forbid I forget my phone, I do have my watch. That's how scary it is. (laughs) Exactly. And look, one of the things I point out in the book is the cell phone really hasn't been around very long. (laughs) I mean, first iPhone came out in 2007. We were perfectly capable of living our lives without phones, and now we seem to be incapable of putting the phones down. So I'm not telling anybody to get rid of their cell phone. I'm telling people to just start leaving it from time to time. (laughs) Go take a walk around your block without your cell phone. Yeah, but then I can't listen to my podcasts. <laughs> Not my podcast, but the podcast that I love to listen to. But you're absolutely right. And and it's it's a great feeling. It really is, especially on vacation, because that's that's a time then we've really worked hard as a family to as much as we can to go without the phones if we were in Greece, for example, and, and a few summers ago and and in the UK or in London or wherever we were, really just Using the excuse of it's too expensive, I'm not buying the international plan, just, you know, yeah, we could use the phone to find each other if we're lost or whatever. But outside of that, it's, you know, it's, but they keep adding, you know, it's the Pacino line in The Godfather, you know, just when you thought it was safe to get back out, they drag you back in because they keep adding these things that, that make the phone even more important in our lives. I mean, the, the, the find my phone thing. And it's not so much finding the phone, but finding out where my kid is and making sure they got home from point A to point B and all of these other things, which... Which I think is great. There's plenty of things that tech does better than the human being. And I absolutely believe we should hand over to tech. It's, it's like from the, the Bible, you know, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? Right. Let tech do the things it does better than we do which is keeping track of traffic, (laughs) tracking our children, stuff like that. But tech cannot replace and does not do social interaction better than human beings. No one on the planet, as far as we know, does that better. We are the masters. That is our superpower. So why would we be handing it over? Yeah. Yet we are also the generation, maybe not the generation, us with the boomers, but the world that's created a Kardashian that can, you know, make a billion dollars on Instagram. Now, I'm not saying anybody, you know, this is capitalism and, and anyone can make their money any way they can, but that the whole world of influencers, that's something that I struggle with just day after day. Yeah, and I, t- I t- this is, you know, I, again, if I didn't think I was going to be talking to a paleontologist for this book, I also didn't think I'd be focusing quite so much on economy and economic trends. And it's frankly... One of the biggest dangers of something like the Kardashians or all these influencers is because we have more knowledge of their lives than we do of our own neighbors. So it's something that I point out in the book that we aren't trying to keep up with the Joneses anymore who make about, the, you know, around the corner, who make about the same money that we do and live very similar lives and who we can actually compare ourselves with. We're trying to keep up with Kim Kardashian and it's impossible. You can't. Yeah, you absolutely can't. But it, it becomes <laughs> my daughter works at People magazine, so she was covering the Oscars the other night and and you know, sadly it's it's what are they you know, there's it's just the, these things that every, and again, that's where the clicks are. That's where people are going, that's where the advertising money is headed and, and these influencers and you know, it's just I just so wish that 
I mean, that's why I just was so happy when my wife, of course, would not tell me because she doesn't trust me. When Greta won Person of the Year at Time Magazine, we have this big thing in our house for years where she just will not tell me. She knows. But from July, I was like in her face. It's got to be Greta. It's got to be Greta. And I happened to know Steve Van Zandt and Springsteen's band. And he's like, tell your wife, it's got to be Greta. It's got to be Greta. And I'm like... It's not her decision. She's just one of many people. And when that happened, I was like, yes, we got that right. So <laughs> so let's wrap this up and talk solutions. You give out so many great ones in the book. And I don't want to spoil it for the readers, but maybe take us through three concrete solutions here that anyone can start right now. I mean, the first one is to know what you're doing with your time. And that sounds really simple but it is revolutionary when you actually do it. So for me, I spent two or three weeks recording in a diary. And basically what I did is every two or three hours, I would just go through and sort of mark down per half hour what I did. And you have to be honest with yourself. I mean, no one else is going to see it. So if you spent a half an hour shopping for shoes online or just clicking through links on BuzzFeed or something, write it down. This is totally for you. But the thing of it is, is that when you get a clear picture of how you're using your time, you will actually see that you might be losing time to things you don't really want to spend time on. You may realize that, hey, listen, I would, I think an hour a day on social media is plenty, but I'm spending three hours a day on social media because I just keep refreshing the feed. And that's the most important part is to really get an idea of doing it. The other reason this is so important is because, as you said, we think we're working more hours, but we don't really know. And that's partly because we do a ton of personal things while we're at work. It's the number one time for retail shopping. It's also the number one time for porn viewing. Mm-hmm. Well, you call, you call it polluted time, right? Is this what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is the polluted time. So we're doing a ton of things personal things at work, but then we're also bringing that work stuff at home. So you have to really get an idea of where your time is going. That's the number one most powerful thing that you can do. Absolutely. So I'm going to steal a a Tim Ferriss thing here, which I've done in a a number of shows with, with the right people, because I just love this question and I'll throw it out to you as the bonus question. But, and Tim does this in, in tribe of mentors, which if anyone hasn't read is just just really, really a cool book to, to hear what a lot of people say about this. But Celeste, if you could have a gigantic billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? Idleness is not laziness. <laughs> They're not the same thing. I mean, maybe my billboard would say something like, stop, just stop, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Like the title, do nothing, like literally stop, just stop. <laughs> You don't need to be doing anything. Like, it's not important all the time. You know, when did everything become so urgent? Only since the smartphone did something become so urgent that emails had to be opened within 30 seconds? Like, seriously? It's a delusion. It's a mass delusion. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that was what it would say. I Yeah. After listening to you, I, I, I might be, mine might be, be nicer to pigeons. Um <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? I, 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 maybe I'm making a mistake having dogs all these years. Maybe it's pigeons that I should be having. I, mean, I didn't they, say they were smart. I just said they could multitask. 
How, yeah. I've got to ask you about that again. So how was that discovered in science? Just what, what are the, where did that come from? That's just so cool. Well, I have to assume they booked pigeons up to an fMRI. Oh, right. Yeah, so they could watch their brain waves working as they were doing stuff. When you see a, a human's brain trying to multitask, you see one thing. When you see a pigeon's brain trying to multitask, you see another. And pigeons can split their brains. Maybe if we're gonna if we're gonna be charitable about it, maybe it's because the human brain is so much bigger and it takes longer for the signals okay. <laughs> to travel further across the brain than it does in a pigeon who's so small and compact. <laughs> that makes you feel better about it. Although if you think about it, pigeons were sending text messages years and years before us. So, you know, there's there's definitely something there. Although I just, I don't know, I picture this pigeon somewhere, you know, watching Amazon and Netflix and, and Hulu at the same time. So, you know, just think of the time saving that that, that, that would take instead of binging all the shows. <laughs> yeah, we, sh- we should leave that to pigeons, though. Absolutely. Celeste Headley, thank you so much. I wanted to just close quoting you again as, as you put this so well. If you take away nothing else from this book... I hope you understand that human beings are at their best when they are social and human minds work best in connection with other human minds. We're going to link to Do Nothing in the show notes. And again, the the name of the book is Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. And it's being published, I believe, by... Penguin Random House. And again, we'll link to all of that. Also, I wanted to mention that if you ever need a speaker for any upcoming major events, look no further. Just ask Google, United Airlines, Oracle, Chobani. Just drop in a few names that have had Celeste speak. Really, I've heard some of the speeches. So folks uh, that are out there looking for speakers, definitely check her out. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Financially Speaking. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and Apple. And thanks to Casey at 777 for once again making today's show happen and to resonate recording for their great production work. Thanks to the folks at Duracell. And remember, as we say each week, when it comes to saving for your future, which don't forget to enjoy, pay yourself first. Have a great week. 